Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, who do you find irritating at work? And if you're like most of the people I talk to, there is at least one and occasionally if you more than one people. And chances are those people are not very much like you. Now, they may be from a different generation or background or hold a different values or even think differently about the way you work and what we should be doing for work. So we're going to talk today first about why we generalize as human beings what we find most irritating, and how all of that impacts our work relationships, and especially, if you know me, what to do about it. And we're going to spend a bit more time on the generational differences as a source of difference than anything else. So my guest today is Chris DeSantis. Chris is an independent organizational behavior practitioner, a speaker, a podcaster, and an author with other over 35 years of experience working with clients in professional services firms around the world. And over the last 15 years, he's been invited to speak on generational issues in the workplace at hundreds of leading U.S. law and accounting firms, as well as many of the major insurance and pharma companies. And his new book, which I highly recommend, Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating General friction, Generational Friction at Work. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Wanda. It's really a pleasure to be here today. So I, I hope this goes well. <laughs> oh, it will go well. We're going to have fun with this one because you've given me so many lead-ins I can't resist talking about. So first off, I always like to ask people why. Why are you interested in this topic? What, what got you started here? Well, the, the topic itself is um, I spent... I spent a lot of times, as you mentioned, with uh, new consultants. And so for a period of my life, I was running these new consultant schools for uh, consulting firms, accounting firms, and so forth. And what I started to notice probably about, I'd say, 15 to 18 years ago, these young people were coming in and they were reacting differently than I would have reacted to authority in the situations they were put in. And so I, I saw them as a little more thir- assortive. The people were saying they're a little more insubordinate. But in fact, I, I wasn't sure what this was about. And then the work of uh, Howard, Howe and Strauss, you know, the, uh, the researchers on this topic of generational differences, I stumbled across some of their articles in the HBR. And I said, well, that's interesting. And that really started me. So I, I sort of got hooked. And, and I've been reading about it ever since. Okay. I can't resist asking, do you really believe that the younger generation, so millennials and Gen Zs, mm-hmm. um, don't respect authority? Oh, no, no, no. It's not a question of respecting authority. It's interaction with authority. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference here. I think I am deferential to authority in my interactions, and that's what I learned as a child to be. But they are, they are engaged in their interaction with authority, and that's their expectation. But we, as the authority, read that differently than they're, than they're really sharing that in terms of how they are, how right. they are um, right. pronouncing themselves. Or- We're going to come to more of this, but I think one of the watchwords for the younger generation, millennial and Gen Z, is that they everything is a discussion. Yes, exactly. Discuss. I, 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 in fact, I talk about that. I think they are children of dialogue, and that's their expectation. Yeah. 
And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm getting ahead of myself because I don't want to talk about generational differences first. I want to talk about biases. Um, So your book is unique in that you start out not so much on, you start with a generational story, but you really start with this argument about why humans generalize. So why do we generalize? What's the purpose of this? Yes, well, um, this is one of the, I think this is one of the differentiators of, of the book itself. And I think the reason we generalize, and I go back to the, and you would know this as well, uh, the Robin Dunbar and the Dunbar number, we were really designed for the first 70,000 years of our lives to work in groups of 50 to 150 people. So generalization wasn't a critical component of our interactions. We just knew everybody. We knew everybody. Now we live in a world where there are a hundred, you know, nine billion of us, and so it forces us to start to categorize. But our it it's gone ahead of our design. And I, I use the work of um, uh, Noam Chomsky because I thought his his sort of telling of how you generalize and why you generalize was really helpful to me. And so. Yeah, I'd love to hear it because I read that part of the book and I thought, you know, and I'm a psychologist trained as a psychologist. And I remember studying Noam Chomsky and reading and the transformation that that made in the psychological field, the linguistics field in particular. But do take us through those. How does that work? Why is it? Why is it important? Well, as as for Again, it becomes a bias, but it doesn't start that what we do is we interact with the world around us, with the people we interact with. We, we don't notice anything different about them if they are the same as us, meaning that the more you are like me, the less I notice that. It's the exception of your behavior that I start to notice. And the exception of your behavior, I start to associate with who is making that exception. And remember, now we're living in this very large world now. And so what I do is I, I delete what is common, and I keep what is uncommon, and then I remember it. And this leads us to distortion. And the mind isn't a camcorder. So in fact, our distortion is such as, oh yeah, I remember, uh, oh, a woman who said this to me before. Oh, another woman said this to me. This must be a woman thing that they're doing. So it seeps from the distortion into the category of generalization because I've got to get through the day. And if I meet every person as a new entity, it would be for a very long day. But if I walk into the exchange with a certain level of assumption, it facilitates the conversation in a way that it lubricates or makes it quicker. But am I right? I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pause for a moment. So we delete what's common. I think that is hugely insightful if you think of all the differences that we're talking about now. In particular, there's been so much commentary around race and ethnicity and the fact that white privilege doesn't see race. Well, what you just said is we if it's common, we don't see it. What we see is what's uncommon. And if you think about survival, if you go back, you know, you started with the evolutionary argument. But if you go back and think the uncommon a stranger was a problem because a stranger was either likely to come attacking or stealing or taking away or bringing disease. Yes. Yes, exactly. We are wired to be afraid of strangers. It doesn't surprise me that we delete the common and focus on the unique, the, the uncommon. But now the part I think that most people don't know, unless you've studied human perception and human memory is how much we distort. We think what we see is really what is there. But the truth is we've done for decades, very few exceptions, our memories become distorted with time. Yes, it's exactly right. You exceptions, but they get distorted. Well, so is our perception. 
Absolutely, absolutely. But as a, as a consequence of that, though, we still want to believe ourselves to be right. So then yeah. we we have exchanges and we depend on the salience of our views. You know, the mm-hmm. oh, I see it again. There, I've observed this again. So I must be right relative to this right. topic. And that is, of course, the salience effect right. that we 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 think we're not distorted because we've observed it in anecdotally in a few. Right. 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 Okay. All right. Um, so, th- so then we generalize. Yeah. So we delete what's common, focus on what's uncommon, which is going to, you know, distort it already in terms of the frequency of it. And then there's going to be the salience of I've seen it once or twice. Therefore, it must be true. We yes. know that that phenomenon is well documented. And then I generalize to all people. Okay. And you see how that gets us in trouble. Oh, with absolutely. Any degree of difference. Absolutely. Although at the same time, it's the heuristics that we use to get through the day. It's the it's the cue. We have cues right. for all of these things. And I I think we think we're more right than wrong. So we don't. This my point would be nobody tests their assumptions by asking the other. They, yeah. have, they just assume I must be right about you. And and then we go to what you know this that we, we go to what the confirmation bias. Right. We then have the discussion with somebody else down the hall about this young person, per se. And who is, by the way, we don't have a discussion with another young person. We have a discussion with a person like ourselves. And then we say, what is wrong with them? And they say, I don't get it either. And then then we are confirming what we already believe about them. Right, right. Um, I was having last week a conversation with one of my clients around feedback. And feedback in particular happens to be across generational issues, Mm. across levels in a hierarchy and therefore experience and across ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So um, there's probably some gender thrown in there as well, just oh. to compound it all. But I'll stop at that particular point. And the exact parallel you've just described f- is exactly what happens. So we focus on a behavior that we didn't like mm-hmm. in the particular person in an event, mm-hmm. ignore the 50 times in which that was correct or appropriate or commonly done. Mm -hmm. We distort it in terms of don't quite remember all the details leading up to it in the exact accurate way. We talk to our colleague down the hall who's just like us at the same status and the same perception. And we conclude, yes, again, that person is lack, can't hold the room, just to pick one of my favorite themes. Mm -hmm. And that becomes confirmed, and off we go to deliver the feedback that mm-hmm. they're not yet ready for the next step. Okay, mm-hmm. you see it play out, and you see it play out across generations as well. Okay, so what do we do about this? Well, again, it's a very large question about what what, what do you do about that? Because part of the reason we have this confirmation uh, exchange. Uh, is that it, it, I like this book of uh, um, Minds Make Society by, by Pascal Boyer. And he talks about this notion of conversational coordination. See, we use, we, we, we use the assumption about others as, as part of the exchange we have with people we already know to, tr- so to, to truncate the exchange. So I don't have to explain a millennial to you if you already agree with what a millennial is. Yeah. And so that truncates the exchange. So part of this is it's endemic to how we operate with another. Uh, so I think one of the things you do is you, we should be better at explaining the why we make the decision about another. I, for instance, your point about feedback is we usually offer the conclusion of our feedback, uh-huh. but we don't offer the behaviors that support our conclusion because that's a given. 
And right. so in, in that sense, you, you're not asking the person to change the behavior. You're just, in fact, admonishing them for exhibiting it. You see what I'm saying? Because they can't yep. change it. They yep. simply can't change it. Yep. So like your point about holding the room, you don't hold the room. Well, there is nothing I can do to change that because I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and it isn't a behavior. You have hit on one of my pet peeves about feedback, feedback processes. I don't care what you've got going in the company how much you're trying to do the right thing, how much you care, if you're offering, and I love how you said it, conclusions. I'm giving the conclusion of right. what I have decided about you, which is a judgment. Right. And I'm not backing that up with the behavior that has led me to that conclusion. That's so exactly the behavior right. somebody can change, the conclusion is changing your mind. I can't change your mind. Mm-hmm. I, I even go one step further because we have to look at the, what we're giving them feedback on. Is this a tangible skill that I could readily see? You can add up numbers or mm -hmm. is it an abstract skill, which I can't readily see because it's your judgment or your being how to be critical of, you know, all of these things about uh, the, 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 the vagaries, the, the esoteric skills. And so, and that's the realm of opinion. Yeah, right. Right. Like decision making. Are you a good decision maker? Yeah, what is that? We can pick, yeah, right. We can pick on a whole bunch of these. I think oh we can gosh. come back to that one. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's get back to our notion of biases. So it's mm -hmm. really clear that we have, well, if anybody looks at any of the cognitive biases, I think the number is up to 66 or 67. Mm. And let's not overwhelm anybody with those, but I really like the deletion, distortion, generalization, salience, and confirmation bias. Those are five that are really strong to hold your hands on. Okay. Now, just get, for the sake of argument, give me an example of how this plays out in generational differences at work. Well, I, I think one of these biases, let's, let's pick on feedback. Feedback, uh, one of the myths of the young is they are sensitive to feedback. Well, the reality in, in the, is everyone is sensitive to feedback. We all are. <laughs> We all are. I think, though, that at, at some level, we get a thick skin relative to what this is, and we're able to differentiate what is, what is important versus what isn't. But when you are young in the workplace, you are, you're going to react. And if you are a child of dialogue, it's more natural that your reaction is, well, what, what do you mean by that? And I think when somebody hears, well, what do you mean by that? Their immediate response is, you're not listening to the feedback. You're getting defensive. And therefore, I'm telling you, then they revert to an authority model. You're supposed to do what I'm telling you versus let me explain. You see? So mm -hmm. it goes back to the, the loosey-goosey nature of how we deliver feedback in the sense that we are, are we intent on helping them or are we intent on venting? And I'm mm -hmm. not sure that we're always intent on helping. But their response is, I think, independent of that. Yet we 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 accrue the response, or we 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 give the response a basis as resistance when I'm not convinced it's resistance at all. I hope that helps. Right, right. I think that makes a lot of sense. I always um, I read this somewhere and it has really rung true for me, especially as I talk about experts versus spanning leadership. When I'm in my zone of expertise, in my comfort zone, if you mm -hmm. will. I can take feedback relatively easily and in fact, seek it because I know how to discern, is that an important or an unimportant? Is that a thing that will make my craft better or not make my craft better? And I, I think experts are constantly looking for one more edge that's going to make them even better in their space. But when I'm trying to do something I haven't yet mastered, mm. that's new to me. Like let's say I've just joined work. I've just joined a consulting firm. Now I'm more sensitive, more defensive, I say, mm -hmm. to the feedback 
because I don't have the judgment yet. I'm not doing everything well. I know I don't have it mastered. And so too many things can pile on. All right? right. And if you think about that with younger generations coming in, frequently they're doing something they're not yet skilled at yes. or comfortable with. So, of course, it'd be true for an older person as well. It has nothing to do with age. It has to do with your status in the thing that you're trying to do that you're getting feedback on. Yes. But I think too often, I like it, we vent, judge, because we're looking for proof on how we're ranking people. Right. Versus trying to actually really help and coach. Yes, yes. And, I, and I, another thing that is part of this equation is the giver. Do I trust you? Do I trust you? Do I have a, do I do? And do you respect me? So is there trust and respect in the exchange? Because I think I'm far more willing to listen to a friend than a foe. Oh yeah. And so, and then how do we create that dynamic? And to your point, if I have mastery of something already, uh, the, uh, then I don't, I'm not as concerned by the source because I have the mastery. And so in that sense, this is a piece of data. And as somebody who's going to build on their expertise, is this data useful to me? So mm -hmm. does it have utility? But if I don't have mastery to your point, uh, then it's important. Who's the context of the give? You know, what's the context of the giver? And are they on my side or not? Are they trying to develop me or weed me out as it were? And so that's really important. And I think the young, quite frankly, and, and I think their, their need is greater in terms of having somebody in their corner. Look at the Gallup surveys. It's always again and again about, is there somebody there to develop me? Do I have friends at work? Does somebody care about me and where I'm working? All of those are around, I think, around the um, rubric of, of, of somebody who's concerned about me. Look at, uh, and we can talk about this later along, and I'm sorry to run on one, but this notion of mentoring programs. Mm -hmm. They were in, when I started in the workplace, no, there was no such thing as a mentoring program. Mm -hmm. But what they're asking for is who's here to take care of me? Not take care of me in, in, in parent-child, but rather who's, who's, who's attending to my career? Yeah, that's a really important thing. Um, and companies have started saying the last five, seven, maybe even 10 years, you're accountable for your own career. You're yeah. responsible for your own career, which I think largely means good luck. Hope you can figure it out. And many yes. of my clients, that is the subtext of it. But the younger generation is not so okay with you go figure it out because they want to know now, yeah. what am I supposed to be doing? Give me advice. How okay. do I take care? And we're not giving them very good answers on that. We're saying good luck. Mm -hmm. But you talk a lot uh, about generational differences for the younger and about the dialogue and the desire mm -hmm. for dialogue and that it's not a disrespect for hierarchy. It's just an unwillingness to be told what to yes. do and how to do it without dialogue. I think they'll take it, but they want the dialogue along the way. That goes for feedback as well. And I think it goes for how they manage their careers, all yes. of those pieces. But I also think they care more about the relationships than perhaps we have in prior generations. What's your view? Well, it's, it's an interesting question because I think it has layers to it. I do believe that they want somebody to take a, a keen interest in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's true. Uh, but it, it's interesting about this dynamic of relationships because we as boomers, or I as a boomer, I was in the workplace and my friendships were, were garnered there. I made friends there. And, uh, and I think the young are, are looking to make friends as well in terms of relationships, but I don't know if that's the same level of driver 
that I experience relative to making relationships. So I'm not convinced of that simply because one of the, the data is showing us we're not making that many friends anymore. We're just simply not making as many friends. So I'm wondering, I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I think all humans want to make relationships. I think what is the manifestation of the relationship and where's the priority of making it? Is it at the workplace? Is it with colleagues? Is it in a, a hierarchical relationship or is it outside of that place entirely? Yeah. And what have you seen in terms of generational differences in the prioritization of where you make friends, like the belief that you make friends at work? I use this. Uh, I, 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 I play with this notion of the methodology of connection. So, for instance, I'm a boomer. So my methodology of connection is I ask a lot about who you are. We get acquainted. We go for lunch. We do breakfast. We do a lot of things together. And I think the Gen X, the crowd that follows that, the Gen X crowd, their methodology of connection is first through competence. We work together. Are you competent? And then I'll start to share who I am with you. And so they sort of unfold over time because they come from a different space. They're, they're, they're more reticent about making the acquaintance. Whereas the uh, methodology of the millennial is, um, I will share who I am with you. Because every day I'm asked, how would I do today? How am I doing today? And I share. So this is seen as oversharing, but it's not necessarily oversharing. It's just a matter of I'm going to volunteer who I am to you in the hopes that you give me back information about who you are. So I just see these as different biases or different preferences as how do we connect. Great. I don't see them as wrong or, or in any case because we all want to connect. You just gave me a clue. I've stopped talking to groups about how do you do networking. A, I've gotten bored with it. Um, but B, I, you know, the audience just doesn't resonate with the classic standards of how do you connect. And you just told me why. Because the old method of connecting over asking questions, seeking advice, getting to know the person at a personal level, building that up over time is perhaps not fit for purpose for, let's start with millennials, who come at this with a much more, I would say, vulnerability focus. I'm going to lay out who I am, and I would expect you to reciprocate. If you do, we're off building trust. If you don't reciprocate, then, hmm, mm -hmm. I I'm think cautious. Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. And so, and, and the other problem, I, 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 when I talk to the young about networking, I, I try to tell them, look, you've, you've got to... To be interesting is to be interested. So I would say, I always say throttle back on your initial desire and say something that is more of a tagline about what might be interesting about you that begs inquiry. Mm -hmm. And if they bite, then we explore. If they don't, be polite and move on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I love that one. All right. So Let's go back to, I think we've covered sort of how these deletion, distortion, generalization, salience, and um, confirmation bias can work in the workplace, whether mm -hmm. it's generational differences or something else. Um, I want to talk about a particular concept that you have, which is the congruence, well, it's the, you call it tell, do, suggest, oh, do, yeah. engage, discuss. Tell right. us what you mean by that. Yes. I, what I did was, I, uh, in addition to reading these books on generations, I spent a lot of time reading parenting novels, you know, books on parenting. And so these are all derived from parenting models. And I, I'm, you maybe as well, Juan, we were products of permissive authoritarianism, which mm -hmm. was, uh, by the way, we, we were seen as, my, our parents were authority figures in our mind, but 
permissive was the moniker that was added because traditionalists weren't permissive at all. Right. And so in that sense, this meant we were tell do. We were told what to do. And so, and the schools, we were told what to do. And if you got a note from the teacher, you're dead. There was no conversation, you know. Yeah. And so, and then we went to the workplace, tell do. So this is a congruent model, congruent. It got a little different when you got to Gen X. They're more of a natural growth. And I lifted this from the book, Unequal Childhoods. Natural growth means that they're more the, the latchkey kid. I call this a suggest-do model. I suggest you do your homework. I suggest So there's an independence that is subsumed within this individual. And I think there's a small reticence to authority. Now we get where it gets really ugly is when you get to the millennial and the Gen Z, and these are concerted cultivation, which is a most elegant term, and then co-piloting. Concerted cultivation is a, a, is a engaged, discussed model with a, an overt effort on the part of the parents to shape the individual and their experiences. The co-piloting model is slightly different in the sense that while you're shaping, you're doing it more Socratically through questioning. So do you okay. think that's something you want to do? So there's a nuance to each. You follow what I'm saying? Yep. And so I see each of these parental models coming to play into the workplace. And when you get down to the millennial and the Gen Z, they're now in these dialogue models living in a tell-do environment. And now they're incongruent with the experience they're having. Right. I see in my clients the biggest gap, not between the boomers and the millennials and Gen Z, but between Gen X and the millennials and yes. Gen Z, because the suggest-to-do model kind of fits with the tell-do. Okay, it's sort of close, you know, it. yeah, good enough. But suggest-do is a mile away from yes. engage, discuss, and a million miles away from a Socratic questioning and shaping. You are so right. What you've got going on here is that you've got an independent sensibility with an interdependent sensibility. And so the, I'll tell you what, one of the things that Gen Z man, anyone who's listening to this, one of the things you will say more than any other phrase about the young is they're so needy. They're so needy. Yeah. Can't they just figure it out? Can't they yeah. just, you see, and that phrase is like, it's reverberating because yes. they spent their whole life figuring it out. And so I'm not sure that the young can't figure it out. I'm sure that they, I think that they enjoy figuring it out with somebody. Mm -hmm. You see, they've worked in a collaborative model in school, mm -hmm. and they have an expectation of collaborating and work. In fact, that's what they sell them on. We're a great team here. We're yep. a great team here until you're on the team. And hey, where is everybody? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, where the team with Gen X is a divide and conquer. I'll do this. You do that. Exactly. Somebody else do something else. And the millennials and Gen Z are really looking for that more collaborative. And if you think about what they've done in the marketplace, um, the kind of businesses that they've built, they are very much, we talk about the sharing economy. There yes. is a perfect example of that. Perfect. And I am struck by how many of them are willing to live in, co not cohabiting is a bad word, but co-housing, where they're creating a community in a larger house. And yes. I don't mean commune back to my generations. No. I mean, renting a house together, different rooms together and sharing cooking and so on. How many of them willing to do that for a long time? Now, we did that in college. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you had enough money to get out of that system, you were out of that system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a different story today. Well, uh, there are, one is the financial requirement of them having to be together longer because it's yeah. more expensive to be on your own now today than it was before. But the second thing is, too, that they, they have a, a different kind of relationship with their parents than we ever had. 
So their, their idea of community is larger than our own. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you're seeing more models, more family models than we mm -hmm. once had before. Mm -hmm. I also think it's why we're returning to the multi-generational home to some degree, because they're welcoming. In fact, the young have all said of any generation, they've said in bigger, bigger numbers, I have a responsibility to care for my parents, Yeah, which is great if you have kids, just yeah. if anybody's listening. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that strikes me about this, um, thinking about it, is both recognizing how we get ourselves biased and yes. misinterpreting and yes. making judgments about people that may not be lined up with that person's intention or even yes. perhaps sometimes with their behavior. And the notion that while it's different, it's not necessarily bad. And in fact, no. it might be good Yes, if when, you can get out of the bias. Well, it's an interesting thing. See, when they come into the workplace, we view them as younger versions of ourselves. But when there are children, we view them as a special, unique entity of who they are. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. we, don't, we, don't, we don't put that put that responsibility of being a young version of me on them as our own. We think, right. oh, you're going to be special in your own way. Yeah. I say, think about them more as somebody else's children when they come to the workplace <laughs> and be a little more, uh, uh, give them a little bit of the doubt here. Yeah. And start with, it was your best friend's child that you hired. So exactly. not some crazy parents out there who didn't know what they were doing. All right. So uh, this is a perfect place to take a break, Chris. Um, geez, what a lot of conversation. I think if I have one thing to take out of this segment it is, why do we generalize? Yeah. We delete the uncommon, we distort what we see and what we remember, and then we generalize. And we generalize based on what's most salient and what we can confirm with people, by the way, who are like us, confirmation bias. And we see all sorts of conclusions about the generations that are maybe not fit for the best success in the workplace. All right. When we come back from the break, I want to talk about this concept of lopsidedness and what you think that means and what we do as well. Chris DeSantis, the book we're talking about is Why I Find You Irritating. We'll be right back. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement 
and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Chris DeSantis, the book we're talking about, Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Now, we have been talking about why humans generalize. And if you know anything about human psychology and evolutionary psychology in particular, you know that we believe we are largely hardwired to deal with 50 to 150 people, the Dunbar number. And then when we get beyond maybe 200, it starts to stress our systems. So we are wired to ignore that which is common among us and focus on that which is unique, like what a stranger would bring. So that leads to some focus around generalization. So we generalize around the uncommon, around what we've seen a couple of times and what we can confirm once or twice with people who are just like us. And therein, we are off to the races in terms of dealing with absolutely any aspect of inclusivity that matters to you at all. Right there is the heart and soul of it, I think, in one, one short bit, spit, bit. Well done, Chris, in summarizing that one. Okay. Um, and we've been talking about generational differences. I want to go to this concept now called lopsidedness. Okay. A concept I love and I see but you mean it, you're advocating for an acceptance of lopsidedness as a way of moving forward. So tell us what you mean and why you think it's important. Yeah, it, it sort of goes intuitively, it seems the opposite of being well balanced. Mm-hmm. And so, but I, I would argue, and I lifted this notion just as a backwards into this is I lifted the term from Dr. Moon and her book, a marketing book called Different. She's a professor, I think, at Stanford University, and it's about brand distinction. And what she's saying is you can't be all things to all people. If you are, it leads to the commoditization and then a lack of differentiation. So rather than, uh, rather than do that, what you should do is embrace that which is unique. It accepts that the buyer is more interested, isn't interested in everything equally, but rather values a few aspects. And so I think people are that way too. I think we are, we are all lopsided. We are all... Um, uh, unique in our own way. Our contributions aren't critical across all the things we do. They're mm-hmm. critical across a few of the things we do, which distinguish us. And so um, I also pulled up the, the book of uh, uh, Epstein who wrote Range, and he acknowledged, look, you don't have to be good at everything. You just have to be good enough at some of these things, right? And so uh, and I think work is a team sport. So a lopsidedness is really the recognition of what is my unique contribution to this particular team to get this accomplished. And I think we should start to recognize that. That's my point in that whole chapter. Okay. I like the concept of lopsidedness, but now I come at this from a different angle. So we're going to have an interesting debate about this one. Um, I hear an awful lot of play to your strengths and emphasize your strengths. And yes, I do agree you should play to your strengths. But on occasion, those strengths overused actually become your downfall. 
So we can't just keep doing strength, 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 strengths. And some of those things that I'm not particularly good at become critical skills or critical capabilities, and you can't afford to ignore them. So like, it's fine to say, I'm going to be on this team and I'm going to be the number cruncher, but I will never learn to write a paragraph or do a data graph. Well, I'm not sure you can afford to say, I will never learn to write a paragraph or do do an infographic segment today anymore. So how do you square that with your notion of it's okay to be unique? Right. Well, to to your point here, this isn't necessarily a prescriptive model. It's not intended to be dogma. What it's intended to be, it's a conceptual framework that says, okay, look, this is what this team needs at this moment in time to accomplish this event. And let's say uh, data, data entry is part of that requirement. Well, we need that. Now, if there's not an opportunity for that skill set um, in terms of if there's an opportunity for that skill set and you don't possess it and that's the only space available, then you cannot really consider being a part of that. So what my point would be is that you start to you have to look at a repertoire as what is necessary to su- succeed in the circumstance you wish to endeavor. And therefore, you have to come up to some bar of performance, I think there's, it has to be a baseline. And to your point is, look, if part of the baseline for this team is the display of empathy, then I, and I'm not really particularly empathetic, uh, then in fact, maybe I'm not right for this particular aspect of the role. So I think it doesn't mean that you're allowed to not learn anything. It means that this, if you, we start to accept that certain things are more important than other things, then you have to perform at a higher level on those things if you wish to have that particular position. Right. All right. So we have some baseline of uh, criteria, skills, capability that I would define on a team that is working for me or with yes. me. So yes. everybody needs to come some proficiency in some matter. And then we would allow beyond that a unique skills, provided those skills are relevant to the work that I need yes. to have done on this team. Okay. Yes. This takes me back to a concept on a team that we've stopped talking about which is the notion that not everybody contributes equally on every team and that we don't make it okay for people to have small contributions sometimes. Now, if they always have a small contribution on every team and every piece of work, then I think we have a performance problem. That's a different story. But you can still stay engaged with the team, up to speed, willing to step in, but not have the biggest contribution in the team. I, I think that is absolutely true. It's, it's interesting that people say these kinds of things, equal participation, because what is equal relative to contribution? You see, if my idea is the idea that changes the entire business, my idea becomes critical, even though I'm not doing any data entry. Yeah. So, it, so what is the weight of that? Which I also think is a little interesting because the people who say, well, we want equal contribution, then why aren't we paying the support staff more? Because if, if it's not written down, it doesn't happen. Yeah, and yet, and yet, we 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 preclude them from the, the you know the real spoils of this. So uh, I think it's a rather specious argument on on their part or on some people's part to say, well, you have to do this. Well, let's just say this is a team effort, and then what what is what is the value of, uh, assigned to each of these contributions? Not the value assigned to the individual. Right. You, you have to decide on the value before you decide on the individual. Why? Well, because if you decide on the individual first, then the, then the individual fights for themselves as opposed to the value. Or we, we fight for that individual. You see what I'm saying? Because yeah. that's the person. But if you talk about the value, it's abstracting it. 
So now we say, okay. what is that idea worth? Okay. And what, what is data entry worth? Now we say all of those things. What are the worths of all of these things? And then we assign people to say, well, who wants to do this? Yeah, and who's good at doing that? Who's and so good on. at doing that? All right. So lopsidedness allows us, the concept of lopsidedness allows us to say we're all not going to be great at all things. We have to have some proficiency. We don't want to overuse our strengths. And those strengths have to be relevant to the task to be done. Okay. But what does, why does lopsidedness help us, particularly as we start to think about generational differences? Well, not just generations. Let me look through the lens of, uh, well, it is generational, but it's it's identity diversity. Mm Mm-hmm identity diversity. This is where I think it's most critical because we don't, again, when you are looking someone through the lens of their identity, what I see is different about you. I don't evaluate you the same way. I simply don't. And so my, this becomes where opinion becomes more because I'm interpreting you. I'm interpreting, just as I've talked about the younger person, we interpret them for not being us. And, we, and so, so in that sense, when, when, you, when you remove this notion of the vagary and you start to assign, we, 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 we evaluate the strengths, the contributions, all of a sudden, what fades to the background is the identity. So wow. now we're clearer on what we're evaluating as opposed to the whole person. You know, this is where I, I like you, Wanda. So I'm, you, you win by the, the halo effect, right? Mm-hmm. You win because you're so good at interviewing. I think you must be great at all these other things because the halo happens yeah. because I'm not, I'm not evaluating. Now, if I'm just evaluating uh, interviewing, then boom, I can, it could be, you know, that's it. That's it. Right. Right. But, so evaluating the contribution. And so it's accepting that not all of us are all things to all people and that we want to say, what's the contribution that's being made? I can also imagine that younger generations really like this argument. Because one of the things that they have said is, I want you to look at my contribution. I want you to look at my ideas, not my age, not my experience. I'll tell you what else they have said is they've been told all their lives that they are special in some way. Mm-hmm. I come from the opposite model. I'm a boomer. I'm nothing special. You're not so special. You're not so special. And I don't know any boomer kid who heard a message that wasn't unlike that. Yeah. And so we had to earn our specialness. Now, these young people, sadly, were, were a product of the self-esteem movement for the first wave. And so in that sense, they were told they were special for no reason. But there's nothing wrong with being special. So I let's don't know I- what's wrong with that one. I mean, you yeah. know. Let's, okay. so let's identify it. Yeah. So let's, let's just name it. Yeah. Yeah. My mother thought that one of the worst sins in the world was to think that you were special. That's exactly <laughs> right. I'm with you. We are the same camp. We had to earn our It was stripes. my mother. That's right. I thought it was just my mother. Okay. No, Apparently it's... it was common. All right. Let's take all of this and go to then to the real theme, the title of the show, Irritating People. And I want to give you a quote from your book, which is you quote Carl Jung and is oh. right in chapter one. And Carl Jung says, everything that irritates us about others can also lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Chapter one, tell me what that quote means and why did you start the book there? Well, I did like the quote. So uh, I started there because I think, I think it, it, and it said the irritates. So it really fits what I'm talking about. Because what I'm talking about here is, um, and I think it aligns with how you think, Wanda, to some degree, even though I'm not as familiar with your work that I will be after we talk. Okay. Um, I think this irritation can be um, an unexplored aspect of who we are. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, look, we're irritated with something. So why are we irritated with that? It might be a projection of something we lack. Mm-hmm. So the point of it is there's an absence here between it and us. 
And so this is, allows us, uh, you know, what is, why is this irritating? And allows us for a little self-reflection. And if you can self-reflect a little bit, I think it helps you broaden your perspective and be a little more compassionate about those who are okay. not you. Because we're all irritating to somebody. <laughs> I say that all the time, Chris. Yeah. And people yeah. are describing one of the things that I often do is difficult personalities, quote unquote, difficult personalities. And my opening line is, remember, that person that is difficult for you is somebody else's favorite. Yes, yes. And by the way, if you want a team, you don't want to you don't want yourself repeated. This is this is this is the yes man model. You want the different. It's just harder. Okay, so irritating somebody who's irritating, they're irritating because there's something I lack. Possibly. Possibly. Like. Now, and what you okay. lack might simply be patience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one we've gotten for sure. <laughs> yeah. but something you and I don't have the time to explain to you all the things that you want me to explain to you, or I don't have time to listen to all of your explanation or read them. We'll see what's the one I heard last week. I don't have time to read your email. Get to the point. There Bullet you go. points, headline, that's it. That what, you're, what they're saying is, I, I don't want a storyteller, now, which is interesting. Because if that's what they're insisting, you be concise. They're saying, I don't want a story. I want you to be concise. Yet, if we want to convince somebody of something, tell a story. Uh-huh. So it seems you can't have it both ways. You can't uh-huh. not like this and then want to convince somebody of something and influence them without the story. So have someone who can tell the story in a concise way. <laughs> that's interesting. Very interesting. Um, are there other things that you think make us, could you say that irritating people are usually PLMs? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I, I love that term. It came from a book called Fractured by a man named John, John Yates. Mm-hmm. And he describes that we, what we do, and you know this, we surround ourselves with ourselves. Again, like the Yes song, but it's the echo chamber. And so people like me, are the PLMs, people like me. It's easier. We like to be in situations that are, fl- that are fluid in the sense there's no conflict, there's no, you know, it, it's just easier to get through the day. And if I don't have to explain myself or be challenged by you, that's easier. Is it better? I think not. I think okay. not. I think it's numbing after a point. It seems efficient on time. Oh, it is certainly efficient on time, but are you correct on what you decide in that quick moment? Uh, Do you have the most information in that quick moment? You see, so I think surrounding yourself with different broadens perspectives and reduces blind spots. Okay. All right. I don't disagree with you for the record, but I'm going to go back to a study from Robin Eli and colleagues that I quote all the time because I think it is a massively important piece of data. And in this piece of data, they have looked at teams. It happens to be uh, retail bank establishments so that we have a concrete measure of performance on a weekly basis on the team. Mm-hmm. And we've got enough teams that we can have a decent database and mm-hmm. we have enough variety on differences among the teams. So we mm-hmm. can have racial difference, we can have gender difference, we can have whatever. And it is an all white majority. Some places we have black majority. So I can now get a metric of difference. Mm-hmm. And you would expect that the greater the difference, the greater the performance on the team. No. I would not necessarily expect that. Okay, so what would you think would drive for greater performance? Greater performance on the team is, are we comfortable with each other and psychological safety is present among us? So you have to establish that first. The other thing is there's too much focus on, on, on identity, uh, uh, identity difference alone when you, ha- you have to take into account is how do we think differently? 
because that's another aspect of this, because yeah. that's below the surface. This is the work of um, Scott Page in his book, The Diversity Bonus. Uh, and, and then again, what's his name? Um, Adam Grant in his book, Think right. Again. They both talk about this notion of you can, the diverse is hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's a harder team. But if you get past the hard of our difference and get into, I, I get you, uh, I, I, I give you the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to give you a chance to succeed. You get past that, you will have a better team. And you tie my lopsidedness into it, where you have the complementary skills as opposed to redundant ones. We reduce the intra-team competition and we get a better outcome. That makes a lot of sense. Well, consistent with that, what Robin and colleagues found, it was the thing they called a learning environment, mm-hmm. which translates, yes, it's a piece of psychological safety, but it's much more concrete the way they measured it than that. And it's, are we open to new ideas? Yes. Are we willing to give concrete feedback to each other, candid feedback to each other, and give and take on that one? That willingness to explore ideas. Yes. And see what could be is what she found to distinguish the teams. I think that's consistent with what you're saying about not just identity difference, but thinking difference and a team environment. And I think the challenge to that, for one thing, for being from a diverse space is that I need some permission to be able to say that to you if you are different so Mm -hmm. that you hear it as you should hear Mm it, as opposed to an accusation about your difference. You follow? Yes. And so that should be at the discretion of the the diverse person who is taking that in. Mm -hmm. But it should be elevated. It should be part of the discussion. It should be part of the discussion so that we understand how to deal with it and not misinterpret or generalize yet again. And by the way, generalization goes on both sides of the equation as well. All right. Um, People like me. Yes. Interesting. Well, you know, can I add something that's, I think, scary about the future, about people like me, is that I, I'm, my concern about the young is I'm, I, I'm hopeful, but they are engaging in this people like me to the extreme and that they are becoming a sort, products of assortative mating. And what's happening here is the young are marrying across any or, or, or mating across any difference except one, and that is socioeconomic. So what we're creating is we're bifurcating our young into two groups. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm afraid I'm a child of what's called the Great Compression, as are you, where we were all compressed to the middle. Mm-hmm. Now what we're doing is we're taking the middle apart. Right. And that's my fear of the future. Right. Well, we certainly see globally um, economic disparity, opportunity disparity that comes with it, educational disparity that comes with it, and everything else that has been talked about, and a lot of concern that that is expanding and not mm-hmm. contracting in any possible way. And I did note that if we went back to your concept of lopsidedness mm-hmm. and focused on contribution, mm-hmm. that we might stop some of the salary expansion, yes. <laughs> differentiation, and focus a little more on the kind of middle ground in that one. Yes, I'd love that. Okay. All right. Um, let's talk for a minute about mentoring. Oh, okay. You okay. mentioned it earlier, uh-huh. um, and we agree on this one, just for the record. And I'll give you the heads up. you got about two minutes to do this. What did we get wrong about mentoring, and what should we be doing instead? Well, what we got wrong about mentoring is we called it mentoring. See, when, when you create a program that says mentoring program, what it says to the, to, to the young, to a great degree, is intimacy that isn't earned. You see, we never describe a mentor in, in the future we only describe them in the past tense. Mm-hmm. I had a mentor. We wouldn't say, I'm going to go find a mentor, but maybe we might say that. But, I'm, but the point of this is that 
when you start the conversation with that intimacy involved, you make both parties somewhat uncomfortable or you skew the expectation, expectations mm-hmm. of at least one of the parties. So I'm, I'm, I am a fan of advice. I think you should call an advisor or, or, or a guide or something simple. And I'm, I'm more partial to small advice. I, I call it the Ben Franklin approach where you have uh, micro advice. You ask somebody, can, you have 10 minutes, can I ask you this? And then you ask them that over a, a, an arc of time. You keep asking for this. Now, all of a sudden, um, a year later, I've really, I realize I've invested time in you. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm interested in you because I've invested my time over the arc without the artificiality of this sort of uh, this approach. And I think this approach garners some level of resentment from more senior people because I never had a mentor assigned. Yeah. And then it just yeah. exacerbates the perception of neediness, which it isn't needy. It isn't needy. It's a genuine need. I think it is a genuine need, not neediness. I think you're right about that one. I do think, I agree with you completely that we get this wrong on mentoring. We get our expectations wrong and we get the roles of either party wrong. Right. And we get the demands on time inappropriate. And that the best advice comes from somebody with whom I have a, a ongoing, more intimate relationship with. I can get advice from any number of people, but that ongoing long-term commitment is a different, is a completely different matter. Uh, and yes, you wish we should stop calling it mentoring programs. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They're advisory programs. They are. And define it accordingly. Or call it mentor, but then define it accordingly. Yeah. Okay, Chris, one, two minutes. What takes you out of your comfort zone and what do you do? Well, it's such a uh, it's such an interesting question because what comfort zone? I, I don't know if I've ever been comfortable because uh, I, I I I once thought um, I come from this. It took me a while to figure out what it was because it was years into this when I found out. Oh, I have imposter phenomena, and so and, and I was thinking, wow. And then I was reading about say, oh my, this is supposed to be a deficit. But uh, the reality is, and then as I learn about it and learn about myself, it's not so much a deficit as it is a driver. Mm-hmm. And so this discomfort, which is common to who I am, uh, urges me to learn. So, so in my world, what I do is I, I just say, okay, I don't know that. I should find that out. And so I think what uh, taking me out of my comfort zone is almost any conversation where I am surprised I didn't know that. <laughs> and then I okay. say, well, what do I got to do about that? What do I got to do? I also have learned, too, that I, I, I bias not myself towards saying I'm not an expert. I have some expertise. I, but, so I'm a life learner. Who, mm-hmm. who's interested. And I think I, I always advise people, don't tell anybody you're an expert because that, that's an end game. We're not. <laughs> I love that. Being an expert is an end game. I'm going to quote you on that one from this <laughs> point forward. All right, Chris, as I often do on this podcast, I'm going to summarize our entire conversation wow. and your entire book in about a minute. Let's see how well I do. If I take away the highlight of this one, People that we find irritating are people that are different from me. And as we think about how we are hardwired as human beings, we are hardwired to accentuate difference, to notice difference, not to eliminate it, not to wash it over. We ignore the common, but we focus on the difference. When I focused on that difference, then what I do is I'm going to go and make some assumptions about the implications of that difference. And that's where I'm going to get distortions in what actually happened and how it happened and where it goes. And we know that memory is biased. 
our shades of gray are biased, as my uh, dissertation will tell you. So certainly our memory is biased. And then I'm going to go and talk to colleagues who are like me, who will confirm that, yes, indeed, Wanda, that person is X, Y, and Z. So I have now generalized, I've confirmed and concluded that that person who irritates me is indeed a problem. And I go to give them feedback and I say the conclusion, which is, you were a problem, as opposed to, here's what you did and here's what it caused reaction in me. Can we do the millennial Gen Z thing and discuss it? (laughs) Talk about it. But we don't do that. We make the assumption and the generalization and the irritation conclusion (laughs) along the way, and therefore we can't see what we need to see in people around us. How's that? Wow, quite amazing. I, I, I would like you to speak on my behalf in the future. <laughs> <laughs> no, my speech would be very short. We need the, all the extra that you would bring to it to make it very interesting. All right, my guest today is Chris DeSantis. The book that we will be talking about is Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. And I just want to say, it has. It's yes, it's about generations, but it's equally about any other friction anywhere in your life. And you can learn more at Chris's website, cpdesantis.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone and check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 